All right, good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to be camping out again today. And uh, special thanks to, to Joe and Jean, who's not here this morning, for working over the, the holidays. Getting a, We've got a, a washer and a dryer and a shower that was donated for Mark 12, and uh, we're able to get those installed this week, and so it'll be very useful in, our, in, the, in the coming weeks as the, the weather continues to get colder and colder. And so, again, back in Luke today, Jesus and the Pharisees have been at war with one another. Now, in my family, we know, we know a little bit about war, especially with our, our kids, uh, our three boys, older boys, tend to uh, have a gift for finding ways to, to argue just about anything, uh, whether it's figuring out who's going to sit where in the car or who's going to put what Legos together. They, uh, they have a gift for turning even the most trivial things into a, a conflict. And I think they've probably learned well. I mean, our culture has, has taught them well how to turn trivial things into arguments. I mean, think about it. Social media, first of all, has given us an opportunity to rant about anything that comes to our mind. And we've come to a point in our culture where pineapple on pizza is a significant argument for some people. And so I want to point out that the war between Jesus and the Pharisees, though, was not over trivial matters. Uh, they weren't fighting over pineapples. Uh, there's a reason that Luke and really the rest of the Gospels spend so much time talking about the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, uh, I looked through Luke, and from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really in chapter 5 on, every single chapter, he's dealing with the Pharisees or the religious leaders in some way. And there's a reason for that. Remember that the Pharisees, they were loved by the people. Uh, they, they were very popular. They looked at Jesus as a, a threat to that popularity, and they looked at Jesus as a threat to their way of life. They, they saw Jesus really as a threat to the, the fragile relationship that the Jews had with the Roman Empire. Remember, Jesus is coming and he's preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, and if the Roman Empire thought that the Jews were trying to rise up some kind of rebellion, it would not go well for the Jews. And so the Pharisees were constantly looking for ways to discredit Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't arguing with the Pharisees because he was scared of them or because he looked at their power. And I mean, he, he recognized that they were going to play a very important part, a role in him eventually going to the cross. Uh, he, he wasn't arguing with them because he thought they were hurting his approval ratings. No, in, with Jesus, the war between him and the Pharisees was really a war for our souls. Uh, you see, Jesus, he, he jealously wants your heart. All of it, not just part of it. He jealously wants you to experience the fullness of joy and love and peace that is only available in believing in the gospel. And so, a heart that is devoid of the gospel naturally is going to gravitate towards being like the Pharisees. And so, Jesus is constantly warning his disciples, don't be like them. 
In today's passage, he's going to expose the Pharisees' hearts. He exposes two of the, the, their biggest idols, money and popularity. And then he exposes some of the, the thorny responses that are coming out of these idolatry-filled hearts. And so my, my prayer, and we've talked about this over the last few weeks, that, that we would heed the warnings of Jesus here, that we would examine our own hearts and see if there's any kind of Pharisaic kind of tendencies and that God would graciously lead us to repent and turn towards him, to, to believe in the gospel so that we would experience the full joy and peace and love that's found only in the gospel. And so why don't we pray and then uh, we'll dive into this passage. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for helping us to recognize that, that our hearts desperately need your spirit and the gospel. And I pray that we would examine our hearts and we would see, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see any kind of Pharisaic tendencies that, that you wouldn't leave, leave us blind to our own sin, and that you would graciously lead us to turn towards you, that you would give us the humility and the, the courage that it's, that's necessary to, to make the changes that we need, that we might experience more of you, that we might experience more of your love and your peace and your joy for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him, ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. All right. So at first glance, it's really difficult to understand how these verses fit together, how these verses, how this passage fits in the, the chapter and the, the grand narrative. This is a challenging passage. It's actually, it's interesting, as I was studying chapter 15, the chapter right before this, the, the prodigal son, there's tons of resources out there. I mean, sermon, thousands of sermons, there's, there's books written about the prodigal son, there, there's ministries named after it, there, there's songs written about it. You come to chapter 16 and it's like, crickets, nothing. There's hardly any resources. The commentaries are all over the place. But I tell you what, one of the reasons I love walking through whole books of the Bible is because it forces us to dive deep into these difficult passages. Because this is where, I, what, what we've found, if you've been with us, is that these challenging passages are where some of the most glorious truths come from and where some of the, the most helpful uh, applications come from. And so, as we always do, we need to understand the context. If we're going to understand this passage, 
we need to understand the, the context. So look back in verse 13. So right before this passage, the Pharisees have just heard Jesus teaching his disciples, look, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And so trying to serve God and money, it's like a wife trying to have two husbands. Uh, when, when we love money, we're basically we're committing spiritual adultery. And Jesus is not okay with being a second husband. Just like he's not okay with us saying that you're my savior, but I'm not going to follow you as Lord. But understand that, that Jesus' teaching on money here, it doesn't come from an angry, jealous husband who is furious about being cheated on. It comes from a heart that longs for his bride to fully embrace him and enjoy him. Uh, Paul warns of the destructive nature of the love of money. First uh, Timothy 6, 9, and 10, he says, But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and do a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so spiritual adultery is self-destructive because money can never deliver the joy that it promises. And Jesus recognizes that. Jesus wants us to be free of the love of money so that we can fully enjoy him. The Pharisees, of course, they don't get this. They love money, and so they, they ridicule, ridicule Jesus. Uh, literally, they, they point their no, noses up at him. Uh, and that's pretty telling of how far the Pharisees are away from God, how far their hearts are away from God. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus were here today preaching, can you imagine somebody ridiculing him? I mean, it's one thing to ridicule a, a pastor. I mean, we're flawed, but to ridicule the, the king of kings, the, the God of the universe, but that's how lost the Pharisees were, completely blinded to the fact that God was in their midst, and this is not the first time they've ridiculed Jesus, is it? They, they've criticized him for, for breaking the Sabbath rules. They called him a lawbreaker. They have complained about how he welcomed tax collectors and sinners, ate with them. Uh, earlier in Luke, they even accused him of blasphemy for claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. And so the, the Pharisees ridiculing Jesus, this is what prompts a response. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. This is what he's saying there. He's saying that you are the ones that are pretending to look better than you actually are. You are the ones who love popularity so much that you think you, you always have to be right. You never admit that you do anything wrong. You constantly justify your own actions, your own attitudes. You constantly are trying to prove your self-righteousness. But then he says, God knows your heart, though. God sees through the facade. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that your heart thinks way too highly of yourself, and you think way too little of God. And then he says this. He says, and what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, what this world, what this broken world loves most, God hates. Your love for money your love for power and popularity is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus is not beating around the bush here. 
But here's the thing. It's easy for us to kind of categorize the Pharisees like with the Nazis and say, you know what, at least I'm not that bad. But when we do that, when we say that, who are we being like? We're being exactly like the Pharisees. We're trying to justify ourselves. I think nobody enjoys being made aware of sin because it means we have to admit that we're not as good as we thought to ourselves, to other people. And as we become more aware of our sin, especially as we compare it to the the holiness of God and His expectations, uh, our sin can feel like a, a crushing weight on us. We sang about that earlier this morning. And often, what does that cause us to do? It causes us to pretend. I, like the Pharisees, we, we want to pretend that we're really better than what we actually are. Or, or we start comparing ourselves to the, the really bad people. Or we, we start making excuses or we minimize our sin by focusing on the good things that we've done. Because we don't want to admit how sinful we actually are. And so we, we spin the truth to boost ourselves up. And so I want you to ask yourself this question. What in your life do you count on to give yourself a sense of personal credibility or or validity, acceptance, good standing? Because how you answer that question really reveals where you tend to justify yourself. In your life, is there some kind of source of false righteousness that you tend to build your reputation on to give yourself a a sense of worth and a sense of value. Let me give you some specific examples. Uh, And I've I've taken these from a, there's a small group study called The Gospel-Centered Life by Bob Toon and and Will Walker, but they they hit the nail on the head here uh, with these examples. Uh, Maybe you find your righteousness in your job. Job righteousness, right? Uh, Like I'm a hard worker and so God's going to reward me. Or, or maybe for you, it's, it's family righteousness. I'm, uh, I do things right as a parent, and so uh, I, I'm more godly than those parents that just can't seem to control their, their kids. Or maybe for you, it's a, it's a theological righteousness. Uh, I've got good theology, so God must prefer me over those people who have bad theology. Maybe it's an intellectual theo- or righteousness where, look, I'm, I'm better read, I'm more articulate, more culturally savvy than these other people, which obviously makes me superior. Maybe it's a schedule righteousness for you. You're a high-capacity person, so you're self-disciplined, rigorous in your time management, which makes you, you must be more mature than other people. Or on the flip side, maybe your flexibility righteousness. Okay, in this busy world, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed, I always have time for others. Shame on those who don't. Maybe it's a mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everybody else should. Maybe it's a legalistic righteousness. I I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't date girls who do. Too many Christians aren't concerned about holiness these days, right? Maybe it's a financial righteousness. Uh, Dave Ramsey is the man, right? I manage money wisely and, and stay out of debt. I'm, I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Maybe it's a political righteousness. I mean, if you really love God, you'd be voting for my candidate, right? And I'm sure there's many more examples that you can think of. 
the problem with these sources of false righteousness is that they, they disconnect us from the power and the joy of the gospel. And they cause us to look down and even exclude other people. When we elevate ourselves and we condemn other people, we're, we're doing exactly what the Pharisees do, what Jesus was condemning them of. And when the Pharisees weren't pretending to be better than they actually were, they were performing. Uh, they were trying to work their tails off to gain God's favor by trying to meet his expectations, which, of, of course, never works. I mean, God's expectation is for us to be holy. Be holy as I am holy. This is why we need the cross. Without the cross, we will never be right in God's eyes. And so what did the Pharisees do? Because they couldn't meet the expectations, they had to lower God's expectations. And so they, uh, they, they would look at the law and they would interpret it the way they wanted to interpret it. And so Jesus, in the next part of this passage, what does he do? He confronts the Pharisees about how they look at God's law. Look at verse 16. It says, The law of the, the prophets were until John. And since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. All right, so let's break this down. First of all, Jesus mentions John. Why does he mention John? John is the hinge of redemptive history. John is the last of the great old covenant prophets. And his role was to prepare for Jesus the Messiah to preach about the good news of the, the kingdom, the gospel. And so that phrase at the end of verse 16 and everyone forces his way into it, forces his way into the kingdom. What is that? It's confusing. It's, in fact, it's very difficult to understand. The, the commentators are kind of all over the place. My best guess, and I emphasize that word guess on this, is that uh, he's, Jesus means that the, the people are, are loving the message of the gospel and the kingdom so much that they're hearing it and they're wanting to be part of this kingdom. They're wanting to be healed by Jesus that they're doing anything for that salvation. They're doing anything to get to Jesus to, to hear about the message of the, the kingdom of God. And so I think about guys like uh, the four friends who literally dug through the roof to bring their friend to Jesus or the, the woman who fights through the crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus that she might be healed. I think when Jesus came, there's such a, it was the greatest spiritual awakening that the world has ever experienced. And so people were repenting from their sin and leaving everything to follow Jesus. And so I think that's what he has in mind when he says this. And I think that interpretation helps make sense of verse 17 when he says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying that my preaching of the kingdom of God is as popular as it has been. It does nothing, it does zero to minimize the law. And he's looking at the Pharisees and says, look, in spite of you accusing me of constantly breaking the law, I'm not the one breaking the law. You are the one breaking the law. I think Luke here is giving an abbreviated version of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless you, uh, this is key, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so here in Luke, Jesus is basically saying to the Pharisees, stop watering down the Bible. God's word to make it easier for you to follow. In verse 18 then, it, with that understanding, verse 18 starts to make sense. Verse 18 is really an, a, an example of how the Pharisees tended to water down the word of God. Now look at verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, let me point a few things about this verse. First of all, uh, this passage is not meant to be a comprehensive teaching uh, about divorce and remarriage. Uh, there's no mention, first of all, of like women divorcing their husbands, probably because that just didn't happen in the lives of the Pharisees. It wasn't even an option for them. Uh, also, there's no mention of the, the two allowances for divorce that are mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus and Paul, adultery and desertion of an unbeliever. And so, this verse is simply meant as an illustration, as an example of how the Pharisees were abusing the law of God. Uh, see, the Pharisees had adopted a tradition based on a misinterpretation of an Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 24.1. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 talks about divorce. Uh, says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And it goes on to give directions on what happens when there's a divorce, but the, the key phrase in there is, what does it mean by some indecency in her? Now, most scholars, and Jesus included in that, would say that that's referring to adultery. That's how Jesus interprets that, that passage later on in the Gospels. But the Pharisees were very liberal in how they interpreted that, and so they, they thought some indecency could mean basically anything that made the husband unhappy. The, their wife burnt dinner. You can divorce her. Uh, you find somebody more attractive than your wife. You can divorce her. And so the Pharisees had made a mockery of the institution of, of marriage, an institution that was made to represent Christ in the church. And so Jesus corrects their loose interpretation. Now, this rebuke of the Pharisees, it, it ought to cause us to examine our own hearts. Is there any way that we are like these Pharisees? Are, are, are we lovers of money? Uh, do we try to justify ourselves before men? Do we refuse to admit when we're wrong? Are we pretenders who are trying to find our righteousness outside of Christ? 
or are we performers? We're trying to really hard. We're trying really hard to to earn God's favor, and so we end up reinterpreting God's law to make it easier for us to to follow. And I think those are important questions for us to to ask. And as we close this out, if you see some kind of Pharisaic spirit, what's the what's the solution? Well, it's simply. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, it's a total U-turn of the heart, which is necessary. And so if your struggle is with money, if you love money, turn from your love of money and, and trust that, that God is way more satisfying. He is way more secure than the stock market. Instead, learn to, to use the, God, the, the money that God has loaned you to glorify God. We need to turn from justifying ourselves before others. Trust that what Jesus did on the cross is enough to give us our righteousness. Instead of, instead, be willing to admit when we're wrong and, and ask for forgiveness and allow ourselves to rest fully in the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks on us, if you've trusted in Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness. Uh, Colossians 3 Three and four, great passage to memorize, especially if you're struggling in your identity in Christ. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love that passage. And then also, we need to turn from minimizing God's law. Instead, we need to, we need to seek to have the same high view of Scripture that Jesus did. I want to I have that same view of Scripture, that, that I would recognize that there, there, there's not a dot out of the Word of God that will be void until He comes back. God has given His Word to us, and we ought to pay attention to it and think highly of it. Uh, if, and so a very practical way to look at that. Uh, this time of year, often we, uh, we pick up those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans, right? In fact, we've got some in the, in the lobby, uh, which are really good plans. And I think we should read the Bible for awareness, okay? We should read through the Bible in, in big chunks so that we're better aware of the, the big narrative of Scripture. But we ought not just simply check it off our, our list for the day that we've read the Scriptures. We ought to also read the Bible for intimacy. We take a small portion of Scripture and, and dig down into it and study it and memorize it, meditate on God's Word. And that we would pray that God would use it to change our hearts and that we would fall deeply in love with Him and, and what He's done for us. And so my prayer is we, as we look at passages like this, that we would be honest with ourselves. That there's... Pharisee in our hearts that we would turn towards him. I pray right now that uh, Mercy Hill would be a place where when people come in, they don't see a bunch of Pharisees. They would see a bunch of people who are honest and real with one another and that love Jesus more than anything else. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, you know our hearts better than we know I pray once again that you would 
remove the blind spots, that you would help us to see where we still tend to idolize money and power and popularity like the Pharisees, and that we make excuses, we minimize your word. I pray that you would help us daily to become more and more intimately acquainted with your word, that we'd fall in love with you, that we'd look at you not as a rule master, but a, as, a, as a husband who jealously loves us and wants the best for us. Help us to take your word seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we move into a time of communion, and I, I would encourage you to not just go through the motions here either. This is a time for you to spend an intimate moment with your Lord. It's a time for you to spend time searching your own heart, and if there's things that you need to confess, you confess them to the Lord. It's time to be reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's time for us to give graciously and, and uh, sacrificially and joyfully to God. This is sometimes, when we, if you're a lover of money, sometimes just writing a check is the way that God helps remove that love from you and focus your heart on Him. After we get through the line, we'll, we'll stand and we'll worship together. If you've got questions about salvation or baptism membership, please don't leave here today until you get those questions answered. If you need prayer, I will be in the back. You come as God is calling you to respond.